a lot of people need help with saying no at all, as well as figuring out what to say no to. Well, hello, you're back at the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins. Thank you for tuning in. Guess who's going to be on, who you're going to be learning from here in a second? A frequent flyer to the podcast, Dr. Jeff Linus. Hi, Jeff. Hi, good morning, Kim. Well, everybody, if you're new to this podcast, you want to go and check out two other episodes that Jeff recorded. One was almost, uh, was August 20th, 2019. So two and a half years ago by now, that's episode number 35. And then what he talked about, some of the things he talked about back in episode number 35, which included things about faculty professionalism council, department chair searches, and this really cool red carpet search experience, and then self-determination theory. When he, when Dr. Jeff Linus got on self-determination theory, I had to get him back for another episode. So that's episode number 69. If you want to learn more about self-determination theory and motivation, uh, this is great for faculty. And I actually, Jeff maybe doesn't know, I talk about him a lot and have mentioned this because I learned a lot about that. That's episode 69 back in February of 2020. So Dr. Linus, please tell everybody what is your role and your titles in Rochester? Well, thank you for the warm introduction, uh, Kim, and really great to be talking with you uh, again this morning. So I'm, I'm Jeff Linus. I uh, am a longtime faculty member at the University of Rochester, uh, professor of psychiatry and of neurology. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist by training and uh, I'm senior associate dean for academic affairs here. Academic affairs means lots of different things at different institutions, but at ours, like many others, uh, it really means faculty affairs, faculty development, uh, for which I work closely with a colleague, uh, Dr. Janine Shapiro, who's our Associate Dean for Faculty Development, and I would say also leadership development. So uh, that ties into the recruitment of department chairs and and other deans and onboarding and kind of general career support for our leaders, uh, including our our department chairs. So like like most of these kinds of roles, as Kim, uh, as you know well, uh, you know, there's some variations, but also some common themes across many places. Thank you so much. All right. So let's get into the juicy stuff of what's happening in your world. Well, yeah. So there's, I mean, there's lots going on, as it's certainly been true in all of our worlds. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention that has been really uh, with a renewed vigor and focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And for our school, I'm going to probably lapse into U of R speak and refer to the ERAP, uh, uh, although I'll trust. So ERAP is E A. RAP stands for our Equity and Anti-Racism Action Plan, which is a medical center-wide thing, Equity Anti-Racism Action Plan, ERAP, which is something that we developed uh, at the highest levels of leadership in the in the medical center, including in our School of Medicine and Dentistry. And that's been a major part of our focus uh, over the last uh, couple of years, not that we weren't doing many things before, but it's really coalesced a lot of efforts. That's intersected with our office in academic affairs in many ways, including the promotions processes. And I know that lots of us in the faculty worlds are thinking about that uh, from several different perspectives, uh, including recognizing that our faculty colleagues of color, particularly people from groups that have been historically excluded or underrepresented in medicine, 
uh, experience what they often refer to as a tax, what we all sort of recognize as a tax on their time, uh, being asked to serve perhaps more than other colleagues on committees and other kinds of service obligations. So that's part of the picture, which then potentially could impact their ability to advance through the ranks and, and get promoted and get tenure and, and so on. Also, we want to be encouraging our faculty, and so many already do and have been for some time, we want to encourage our faculty to pursue activities that foster diversity, equity, and inclusion in keeping with the ERAP, our, our equity anti-racism plan. And people want to know, and often people have a preconceived idea that, well, like, if I do that work, I'm not going to get credit for it and getting promoted which I don't actually think is true in substance, but it is a popular perception even at our own institution, despite the, what I do believe is the flexibility of our criteria. So the question has been, how do we recognize and help people recognize that they can get recognized for what they're doing in the DEI space? We also face challenges, which I imagine are not totally unique to, uh, to Rochester, that changing our regulations and our promotions criteria is not something we can do unilaterally and not something we can do quickly. Uh, as an aside, when we last did our big revision of the last big revision, which was uh, back in 2012, I was new in my role in the dean's office. And I asked one of my predecessors who presided over the last revisions how long it took. And he told he's a great person. He told me, well, expect it'll take about two years. And I thought to myself, I think we can do, you know, I think we can do better than that, although at least I censored myself. I didn't say it to him in the moment. But in fact, he was exactly right. You know, the, the hard work it took about a year, and then it took a full another year to get it through the university-wide committees that had to approve it. It's, it's a slow process, typically. Um, and we wanted to be able to do something sooner. So what we wound up, uh, decided to do and did is annotating our criteria. So we can't change the regs themselves. We can't change the fundamental criteria. There is already flexibility built into them. They're purposely written, in a sense, to be content agnostic. If you're providing clinical care or a professional service of some sort, if you were teaching or doing other education-related functions, if you were doing research or scholarship or community partnerships, we don't talk about any specific content there, right? You know, you can be doing research that's, you know, epidemiology. You can be doing research that's you know, RNA biology and, and, and anything. Uh, so what we did was we provided a set of annotations for each of those, what we call activity components, what most schools call tracks, that said, here are examples of how you might do DEI work that would get credit in this section or under this activity component. We also rounded up some CVs of folks who've been doing active DEI work featured prominently in their CV and put them up alongside our other sample CVs of, you know, here's how people portrayed this on their CV. So relatively simple stuff. Uh, things that we were able to do relatively quickly. And it's up there, it's out there, uh, it's available to, uh, to our faculty and actually to the broader public. So uh, say more about the, the longer process of actually revising our regs in a moment. Just genius in its simplicity and its elegance. That's what I like about it, that sometimes we look at these things and say, oh my gosh, we throw our hands up. It's going to take years, years to do this. It's a heavy <laughs> lift. I don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of stamina. I'm not going to do it. Well, anything worth doing is never easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you look at the return on investment and the cost, a lot of us may think it's not worth it. But what you've just demonstrated is a little bit of a, just a tweak can hold things and change things uh, just enough to generate that enthusiasm and interest to move on and to demonstrate that, all right, this is doable. Here's a quick fix right now. And what I, what I think is so important about what you said is that 
regardless of the inherent flexibility that we as leaders think are embedded and baked into these policies, the perception is what you said. The perception of the faculty is what matters. They can, we can give seminars and workshops and presentations and messages over and over and over again saying, you know, here are the different ways you can get to promotion and it's uh, very, it's individual and it's up to you. And yet, inevitably, in every one of our promotion sessions at Hopkins, the hand goes up. How many publications do I need? Yes. How many yes. grants do I need? It gets down to brass tacks. And there's always this, the leaders say, well, we don't count papers and we don't count grants. And then the subtle murmuring in the crowd is always like, mm-hmm, sure you don't. <laughs> but this, so to me, it's always you know, we have to listen to the faculty. Their perception is what is important. If we we can preach all we want, but when they know or they can count on their fingers a number of faculty colleagues or what the rumor or the word on the street is, you have to really bust those doors down. And what I think is just so obvious and so wonderful about what you've done is here are some samples. Here are the portfolios. Here, here is click on any of these number of uh, packets to see the different ways people have been promoted to get people changing their perception of, well, no, I know my friends at coffee are saying, well, you need 42 publications or you need, you know, 16 R01s. And yet, gosh, I went to the website just last night, friends. And did you click Uh on so-and-so CV? He didn't have any of that, or she didn't have that. And that kind of changing changing the narrative by just looking at the data, the evidence. So kudos to you. I love the annotation. You don't have to chew the whole elephant. You just take a little piece and then tackle tackle the big work, but it's not impossible. So I love that. Rochester, you guys are crushing it. Good job. No, thank you. I, I think you captured so much of what makes this fun and also challenging. And, and the perceptions thing is, is hearing you think about that, you're so right that that faculty, they're having conversations one way or other with peers and with mentors and other colleagues all the time and hearing all kinds of things that are flat out wrong, or maybe it was true 30 years ago, but hasn't been true for years. You know, you can't get promoted unless you renew an R1, uh, or, you know, if you don't have three papers a year in peer-reviewed journals, of course, it does depend what career paths went on, and there are real expectations. So some of it, I think, is you know, water cooler talk in formal or less formal settings about these kinds of issues. I also think that faculty, not surprisingly, you know, we want, just tell me what to, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Right. So if I could give people a number. So when people ask me, I, you know, I also get that question all the time, you know, how many papers or, you know, how many more do I need before you think I'm ready? Um, And, you know, what I, what I say to that part of it is that I appreciate the, the need for specificity. And yet we purposely, and this is actually true, when we revised our regs last time, we debated, should we say specific things? And we were very clear that we should not. Uh, you know, they would be really clear if we could simply tell people, you need an average of 2.17 papers per year in peer reviewed journals and you'll be fine. But all papers are not alike and all journals, are, you know, we're interested in originality and influence and and impact and in ways that are very difficult to quantify, even in terms of papers. And then when you think about leadership roles and mentorship roles and uh, community partnerships that lead to, I mean, how do you, you can't quantify most of that very well at all. And so we purposely 
don't quantify things that we don't think should be quantified, which of course is why we depend on peer judgments. Yeah. If we could quantify all that, who needs who needs ad hoc committees and a, and a promotions committee? We just spit it into you know spit it into the database, and you would automatically get promoted. But that would be that would be useless. And that and that is a paradox of this whole this whole thing, Jeff. I mean, I'm thinking you're, you're reminding me of a seminar we did last week, and um, I was kind of you know mirroring our, one of the great leaders in our field, Luann Thorndike, when Dr. Thorndike came to Rush University Medical Center back in the early 2000s when I was there um, doing a research mentoring program. And she had this thing, uh, this talk on graceful Mm self-promotion. And and it was this combination. She said, you want to balance I versus we statements. You know, good Mm -hmm. leaders, it's not like I, I, I did this, I did that, I did this. You you balance that with the we statements. So during this session last week, you know, we were talking about how you can't be artificially humble about, oh, I didn't do any of this. You have to, of course, appropriately claim credit for things by enough I statements, but you don't also want to give out this humble bragging where you sound so obnoxious that it's like, but did Kim just do all this by herself? She literally <laughs> island and no human being ever helped her with anything. How obnoxious. So this, so the question was asked in the chat, this is all great and it's interesting, but it's kind of this balancing I and we is flying in the face of this book I read on leadership last week where you really have to take credit for things and stand up. And so what exactly is the proportion of I to we statements that I should be using as a leader? And I couldn't help myself. I said 36. What? I couldn't help it because I, that just goes to the whole thing of we are scientists and we are in academic medicine where we like certainty and unpredictability. And I think especially on the heels of a pandemic, where there's been so much uncertainty. And now, now I'm going to tie something back into Dr. Jeff Linus's talk on self-determination theory, where one of the three elements of self-determination theory, you taught, you taught us and reminded us, autonomy, competence, and relatedness or connectedness. Well, competence is one of the, that central thing. We want to be masterful at something and good at something. Yes. So just like you said, the paradox is, give me the number. Give me the target. Give me the organ yes. to take out or the beta coefficient. Of, I need some certainty. But when you don't have that, that's when we all kind of feel like we're walking on wobbly ground. So that's the paradox that we want to say, no, you can create this. You have the autonomy to create and build a path. And yet that exact same uncertainty or boundlessness is creates a little bit of fear and like, well, you're telling me I can do this, but what if I go down that path and create my own way? And I didn't hit the 36% mark. I was only at 34%. I wasted my whole life doing this and now I can't get promoted. <laughs> I think that ties into the whether faculty members are getting uh, helpful appraisals of where they are in their own individual path along the lines of what you're just talking about, which to help allay that anxiety. Uh, what we don't want to have happen, and you know, I think it happens not anywhere near as often as it did many years ago, but I can't say I think we've completely eliminated this, is a faculty member who's approaching the end of their, let's say, second term as assistant professor. They're expecting to get promoted to associate professor early, you know, a year or two earlier than the end of their term. Um, and uh, you know, there's a mismatch where their department chair or other supervisor leader is not only not thinking they're ready for promotion, but is not so sure that they even want them to you know, be reappointed and stay on the faculty, or that's an extreme example. But that kind of mismatch 
should never be a surprise. Right. So, you know, so we, I mean, this is not something that I think we invented here, uh, but we were trying, the idea of the annual review required by the LCME, as we all know, of all of our faculty, we built into our form some years ago. Uh, the last item on the form, and I often tell people, I think it's the most important thing in the whole thing is anticipated next career juncture. You know, which what that means is, you know, is in the middle of their, you know, this term. And here's what the faculty member is anticipating is going to happen. And it's a chance to then check that out with their chair or the person uh, supervising that's doing their review to see that they're on, in sync with each other or not. You know, uh, and with or not, then that they need to talk about that, think that through. And it may be most of the time it's not not a question of being reappointed. It's a question of if you really if you want to be promoted on the pathway or the scholarship oriented pathway you want, you are going to need to have more publications. You're going to need to have more uh, national visibility. Maybe you need to get on a committee of a national organization or you know whatever it might be. But have that conversation. Not that once a year is enough, but a, it's at least a prompt to make sure that that check-in is happening. And that's another challenge I have found, and I'm sure some of us share this as well, is that, yeah, you can check a box that, did you get an annual review? Did you complete an annual review this this year? Do you have a mentor Mm -hmm. on our like annual reappointment letters? And we have to check those boxes. And if you check no, then there's a flag somehow. But everybody knows, I think that's, again, one of those perception things did I have an annual review? Oh, that's right. I did meet with Dr. Linus over the summer and he asked about my RVUs and was I hitting targets? And I guess that was my annual review. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a mentor? Yeah. I met with Kim Skrupski uh, last year. I guess she's still my mentor, even though she kind of barely remembered me. All right. So everybody kind of knows that that's a, some, in some places it can be a box checking event Yes. yes. and it's not substantive and it's not necessarily driven by my career, it's what have I'm the as I'm the director or the boss, what have you done for me lately? Are you making me money? Are you are you somebody I can put in the good person bucket or are you going to cause me trouble? Versus the other end of that whole process is the faculty member, his or herself, who has to, as much as we can, own that process of saying, yeah, I understand you got to take care of business over there. Yeah, we're making the widgets. Everything's happening. And let's talk about that fourth matrix on the Covey, you know, leadership things that's maybe not urgent, but it's really important that, yeah, the next juncture in my career is um, I maybe wasn't as productive during COVID and I have to take care of my kids. And I have a little bit of anxiety about what's going to happen in the future, but I anticipate getting promoted, but help me out here. So that's, again, another challenge that we find the the push-pull between demonstrating productivity urgently versus the career planning things that you said um, is so critical at the end of your annual reviews. I think the idea that there they are reviews and not and, and we call them annual reviews and not performance evaluations and they're not they're, we don't we don't want them to be mostly about compensation and revenue generation. You know, I mean, it, not that those things aren't rather critical to you know, running the institution uh, and making everything possible. Yet that it, these are as much about mentoring and career development. It, it, in, in the end, that's the most important goals and, and you know, the compensation and productivity metrics in, in whatever arena, uh, clinical or research or teaching. Um, those are, those are just part of the, part of the 
Yeah. So at University of Rochester Medical Center, you that's not those questions are not um, are they part of your annual review? In a general way. So we okay. purposely don't don't because the departments will vary and they may actually have a separate meeting to talk about clinical productivity oh. or so on. Um, uh, that's part of kind of a compensation meeting, particularly depending on the timing of when they do the annual review versus the academic and, and fiscal year. So it varies by department and by area, how much they get into that in the annual review. Our template is very broad and basically mission, mission-based. It kind of goes, you know, clinical like mission-based in a way that maps onto our promotions criteria. Clinical education, uh, research scholarship, community partnerships, institutional service, DEI. I mean, those are the domains. And under clinical, uh, people may get very fine grained to talk about this was their RVU productivity. But most of the time in the annual review, I think for many departments, uh, that's less what it's about and more you know, I've been doing this, I really would like to do less inpatient work and more outpatient work. And we're going to work to make that happen over the next year, you know, more general career kinds of things. Well, you just said something really, you know, important, of course, and that is that what we call things and what we name things, annual review versus annual performance. And, and that nuance is obviously really important because again, we're back to perception that you in one hand, um, from the leader's perspective, we, we can call this whatever we want, but then in, in practice, that's the wink and the nod of you call this whatever kind of fancy title you want, but we all know when nuts and bolts in this department, when we've had meetings here at Hopkins, the people in that department go, oh, this is nothing about me. Are you kidding me? Um, we're drowning. This is all about um, performance. So, but the, I think what is what is really important from that I'm gleaning from what you said is being very clear on the purpose of this fill in the blank, this meeting, this committee, this task force, this process, and making that very transparent. These are the expectations, electives, yeah, fill in whatever you want, but this is the what we're talking about today. This is what we want to focus on. I appreciate that you're trying to help me out, faculty member, by telling me all you've done for the department. We will handle that at a different time, I want to know how are you doing? Let's talk about you. And that intention of that to me is that setting that intention. I'm, I'm kind of like hearkening. I'm thinking of my yoga instructors who say, set your intention. I always think, what do you mean my intention? My intention is to be here and finish this class and not, you know, fall over sideways. But that setting the intention of making sure on both ends, what are we here to talk about today? And then getting into that practice of, faculty members and dispelling myths or misperceptions of what that process is. You could say, oh, I'm sorry that happened for you and your annual review. In my department, our annual review is, it really is about me. I really felt great leaving that. I felt like I was being coached and it was really inspired me. Um, so that that is, is really important. Again, what you said to me was in the intentionality of what you call and how you set up that event of the annual review. Anyway. I think, I think you've really... Um, captured the, the aspirations of what we're trying to do. I don't mean to say that I think we always live up to it quite as well as we're talking about it. Uh, I think we've provided a framework and an and a, and a, uh, intention to, to make it about that. Uh, but of course, you know, with uh, now 2,100 approaching 2,200 employed faculty members, uh, these reviews are done by a wide range of people. Most departments, especially on the clinical side and increasingly on the basic science side as well, are large enough that the chair is not doing all of these her or himself. Um, and so the number of people who lead the annual reviews is a large number that's only 
growing. And so this, you know, variability about how people approach it and how, I mean, I, you know, I, I know that at least in some cases they are more perfunctory or not quite as career oriented and, and back and forth, you know, true mutual dialogue kinds of conversations as, we, as we'd all like them to be. Also recognizing that even the best uh, of uh, leaders and colleagues who do these, we're all busy, we're all swamped with everything, uh, even all the more so in the last couple of years, as we all know, with all the uh, all that's been going on for all of us. And so that, you know, impacts how these conversations actually happen. But that is the intention. It is the aspiration. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, providing framework and tools to help people do that as well as we can. And I can't imagine that, as you mentioned, with your ERAP, the equity anti-racism approach, and this attention to or mindfulness of uncompensated effort and these attacks on people's times of being a good citizen, that that has to be baked into that. Tell me of the other things that I know you're not, you don't have official release time to do or you don't have resources to do. We have, we can all think of faculty members and some of you are the faculty members listening to this who it's the, I call it the competent person syndrome. You ask the busiest person you know and the yes. person knocks it out of the park every time they're always hit for, but oh, you're so dynamic and you have so much charisma and you've got so much energy and you're a, build, a bridge builder and you know so many people. And it's, you know, ask Mikey, he'll eat it. He eats anything. Try him. That old, old, <laughs> old commercial that you're like, really? I'm getting asked again. Yeah, because nobody does it quite like you. And you think, really? But so we have a lot of faculty members who are always the go-to people. And so I imagine just bringing that right up to the front, especially with the heightened awareness of, of the ERAP, you know, strategic initiatives and your objectives there, that's got to be, you know, front and center at your annual review. Let's not just say, oh yeah, and I do other stuff. No, my goodness, this is, that's a lot of effort and it should count and be acknowledged minimally. That's right. And, and there are people who may need advice to say, you know, you need to say no more often, although often advice come to, you know, come to me as your colleague, supervisor, when you get asked something, because there are things you probably shouldn't say no to, you know, and, and that there are plenty of other things you probably ought to. And, and so a lot of people need help with saying no at all, as well as figuring out what to say no to. Uh, and of course, we'll have our own biases about that. I mean, when I invite people to serve on an ad hoc committee to consider someone's promotion, I would like to consider that invitation is one of those things you don't say no to because we all depend on it. But, you know, I also realize they're getting you know, 20 other requests like that that week. And how do they decide which ones to say no to? Right. And how does a faculty member know which one's going to be held against me, you know, yes. during the annual review or when I do go up for promotion or am yes. put my hat in for a leadership position? How do I know which one of these by virtue of my having said a gracious no, thank you, really ruffled some feathers and now it's going to come back to bite me? So that's, the, you know, the, the ambiguity that I feel faculty members are like always feel like, yeah, it's easy for you to tell me say no, but if I say no, the ripple effect is going to really come back and I'm going to be in trouble and someone's going to say, oh, but you're not a team player and you da 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 So I, I hear that a lot too. So it's so, um, the vagueness, I think, is what gets our faculty. They just like, like you said earlier, just tell me what I need to do. And you yes. make your best decision and at that time and hopefully people, you have a tribe, you have people, your mentors who will have your back during those moments and yes. stand up for you and say, well, no, because it's completely inappropriate during that time, thus and such, I was a part of that decision. Yes. Um, so, 
I'd, I'd love to hear more about this really cool new thing you're starting at Rochester um, that has to do with recruitment. Would you like to do give a little teaser tickler about this uh, very innovative concept? Sure. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I certainly don't think we invented this idea. Uh, we've sort of borrowed ideas we've heard from colleagues around the country at Group on Faculty Affairs uh, meetings, among other sources, with the idea of partnering with our human resources uh, experts to build a new office, uh, including a director, a new position, director of faculty recruitment, um, uh, an HR uh, trained person who will lead and build an office. Uh, in close partnership with uh, academic affairs and with other parts of the dean's office, including our office of uh, equity and inclusion, among others, um, to help, I would say, raise the level and standardize the approach to faculty recruitment more than we have done uh, across all of our departments. Uh, so like a lot of places, we continue to grow as in addition to having normal uh, levels of, of turnover. So, you know, when I started in this office uh, nine and a half years ago, we were recruiting 60 to 70 faculty members a year. We are now recruiting well over 200 people a year. So it's, it's a big operation. Um, and much of it really happens in the departments as it will continue to do because, it, you know, it's very discipline specific and people need to know people and, and know what the resources are. But how we approach that, how we build a broad and uh, diverse candidate pool, how we structure our approaches to interview questions and to the stages of the process uh, in ways that mitigate and minimize uh, un unwanted, unintended, unconscious, and implicit biases, among other things, and do it in a way, you alluded to the red carpet approach, uh, uh, which we've talked about before, and do it in a way that does help the candidates feel, in appropriate ways, feel catered to, and, and uh, heard and listened. And, you know, I, I often say in the, the searches that I've been involved with that we want all our candidates, even if they wind up not coming here, not being chosen or not choosing not to come here, to feel better about Rochester as a place, right? And, and that those vibes are, you know, a not so side benefit of the, of the recruitment process. So how do we help departments do that across the institution, not just for their highest level searches, uh, division chiefs or other leadership roles uh, or chairs or, or center directors uh, or deans for all our faculty recruitment. Mm -hmm. And so what we're imagining is, a, is an office that will have sort of a tiered approach because it's going to start off with a small number of people uh, and can't kind of do the whole search process and be the search firm and be the infrastructure to do every search for 200 searches plus uh, across the institution every year. But, you know, for certain searches provide sort of full service, uh, you know, recruitment office functions for many provide guidance and templates and resources that help departments do that in, a, in this more standardized quality kind of way um, and advice along the way. And then, if, you know, if, the, if it goes well and, Departments love the service and demand more of it, then we will have the ability to build the office more. One, so we are um, very uh, in the midst of interviews now with a person uh, who, um, you know, uh, may become the next direct, the first director of the office, which we're very excited about. And uh, certainly our office in academic affairs will be a major partner with them. And this kind of partnership between, obviously, we collaborate all the time with our colleagues in HR, but this is a level of collaboration uh, and uh, that we haven't had before. And so I think the joining of our faculty specific expertise with search and recruitment and HR expertise uh, is 
has happened for a long time at some other institutions, but we haven't quite had that here yet in a systematic way. So I'm really excited about it. That is that is so interesting. And I, I love the standardization because as we all know, that's again, another struggle of wanting to create a culture or an environment where everyone is, is again, we're academic freedom, right? We're academia, where you are independent, departments can make their own decisions and faculty can make their own decisions and choices. And yet that very same freedom and flexibility inherently brings lack of standardization standardization across divisions and departments. So that's a, a kind of a, always a struggle that we experience that, gosh, can't the dean just mandate that every department director, or every department chair says every faculty member must have X hours of faculty development training per year? Can't the dean just say that? And then you think, well, yeah, it sounds easy. He could say that. But then how would you monetize that. And so then you get into all the discussions and you're like, you know, three, four hours later in this debate, you're like, never mind. This is why we can't standardize things. It's too many. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but I call this the yeah, but phenomenon. Yeah, but yeah, but dad, yeah, but mom. (laughs) You hear so many yeah, buts that you're like, all right, never mind. It's too complicated. So with that kind of stuck in my head and without you going too deep into how you are, have built consensus around this, I'm imagining some of, the, some of your department chairs are like, woohoo, thank you for finally helping us with this. And some department chairs are like, are you kidding me? This is another thing that you're telling me I have to go through you. So you're going to complicate this for me. We got it all figured out. Thank you very much, Dr. Linus. We don't need your help. But now I'm going to have to fill out 62 other forms, talk to 25 other people. You're going to the timeline for my hiring people is going to be extended because now you're telling me that this is the preferred way of doing things. What is what say you to that? (laughs) Well, um, most, uh, you know, our our chairs don't tend to speak quite as bluntly, which I think is a good thing. But they know. But but I think you did articulate what's happening. Not so very far below the surface, right, in terms of the range of reactions to any such initiative. Having said that, we have a wonderful group of of, of chairs and center directors and other leaders who uh, really from the earliest stages, by and large, understood the value of this kind of thing. What really turned it around, though, in terms of actually uh, getting resources to do it, because we first proposed this now, I want to say it's three to four years ago, uh, was our attention to, uh, and commitments to the ERAP, to the Equity Anti-Racism Action Plans. We talked about from early on, among the many advantages of this approach, is improving the, well, it's improving the breadth and quality of our applicant pool, which obviously most certainly includes diversity, and then doing an equitable and inclusive approach to this process will lead to a more diverse faculty than we have now in all kinds of great ways. So, um, so we knew that with the attention and resources that, and, and again, all of our leaders are so fully behind our, our ERAP and really committed and enthusiastic about it, this and, and recognize that we have to do better and do different to get where we need to be. Uh, this became possible. That's why it's not a coincidence that's happening now. And so the level of enthusiasm about it has just been really wonderful to see. Now, once person is hired and we start building the office, there will be the details, really important details to figure out. And I'm sure we will get, despite all of what I just said, there will no doubt be some reactions of really, do I really have to do that? Or for us, it really should be this and not that. And, you know, and of course, sometimes that's true. Sometimes that is, there is wanted as well as 
unwanted variability. There's a lot of them, but there is a lot of desired necessary variability across departments. And so we will need to figure that out over time. And one of the conversations we're having with our candidates for the director role is just that, you know, we are, I mean, the folks who, uh, candidates who come from a background that's not an academic health center talk about needing to learn the business and transfer their skills to the new business, which is true. What I say to them is we are one huge business and we're also a whole lot of other business, you know, business lines within that business that are really in many ways quite different from each other. Yeah. And kudos again to you for really uh, demonstrating true collaboration with HR. I think a lot of us um, say we collaborate with HR and collaboration means, well, yeah, I've got a file folder in my inbox with her name on it. So I, I collaborate with her. I, I you know, copy through <laughs> my emails once in a while and I put her email that I get in that file folder that has her name on it. So yeah, we collaborate with, with the little air quotes. Around <laughs> so kudos to you for actively sitting down at a table and coming together with an, an intention and a, a challenge and talking the same language and recognizing HR friends for their unique skills and talents and taking the time to help them understand all the complexities in a school of medicine. So that's not easy. I, I know we have invite our HR people to our advisory board so that they could hear from the faculty's mouths, you know, the, the common things that I just got funded to do this great grant and um, I can't hire somebody to run the project for six months because HR, but HR says, well, geez, we, we need to do this, that, and the other. And we had no idea. So that, that kind of all that hearing each other versus um, snarky emails or snarky anecdotal evidence at a table, that's hard work. And it's hard work to appreciate both sides challenges and what this is not personal, Jeff, I'd love to be able to have let you hire somebody, but I just can't willy nilly post something on monster jobs today. There are there's we're bureaucracies, right? We're really deep. So that those conversations, I totally appreciate how um, time consuming and what a level of commitment. So that again, says something to Rochester and your leadership for doing this and actually making it happen. So more kudos. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited about it. As I think most of us or all of us are here. Uh, of course, there's an awful lot of details to figure out. And so there's uh, lots of lots of fun work ahead. Yeah, now, this is great stuff. I, I, always, I remember that red carpet search experience that you talked about back in episode number 35 and thought that's just such a testament to just this, this, this sense of we-ness. I like that you are very in, um, purposeful of trying to have this sense of whether you choose us to come to our University of Rochester, whether we decide it's not a good fit, you want people, everybody to walk away saying, all right, this is a good experience. These are good people. It's just not, a, it's not working for me. This is not the place for me, but um, this is a good place. And there's somebody else who will, will fit in there. So it's, it's a really open, honest vibe that I've always gotten from you in Rochester. So it sounds great. So it's good stuff. Any, any parting comments or thoughts for the faculty factory community, Dr. Lang? Well, just to say how much I appreciate the chance to, to talk with you again, it's always great to have these kind of conversations. You stimulate all kinds of ideas for me that, that I then take back into our work here as well. Uh, and uh, also, uh, I'm so impressed by the community that you have built, speaking about building communities and building functions, the community that you built through the podcast 
uh, incredible resources. And uh, as you refer back to episode, is it 35? You, you know, you know more about what I said than what I said, but, and, and I know you've talked with, you know, dozens getting into the hundreds of people now. So, uh, so, so kudos to you for, for, for pulling wow. all that off so well. No, no, thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Everybody listen to the Faculty Factory community. This is a community we're building together, encouraging, inspiring, sharing tools and resources. I don't intend to do this forever. I definitely want to give this to somebody else to lead it. So be a part of the Faculty Factory. Send some um, great speakers our way. You contact me if you want to be on the podcast. Get a hold of Dr. Jeff Linus, University of Rochester, to learn more about ERAP and all this cool stuff. Listen to episodes 35 and 69. I love the self-determination theory. I talk about it all the time. Dr. Jeff Linus, thank you so much. I miss seeing you in person, but at least this one-dimensional version of you is better than the Skype version. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Kim. Bye, everybody. Tune in next time to the Faculty Factory. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.